The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Path joined by Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, amateur paleontologists. I didn't know there was such a thing, but they discover a treasure trove of ancient fossils. A blind penguin finds a helping wing to get around. And this week's Weird Wednesday includes part of a plane on a roof, a wild skiing trip, and a couple of Guinness World Records. What would Weird Wednesday be without Guinness World Records? Plus, this day in history, a historic day for the telephone. Coming up, it's cool stuff. In France, two amateur paleontologists have unearthed a treasure trove of fossils dating back 470 million years. This per a new research paper out of the University of Lausanne. The site in Motagne Noire, a mountain range in central France, contains nearly 400 well-preserved fossils and per scientists provides evidence that this site was once a place of refuge for animals escaping global warming. Now, per GNN, the fossils are believed to have their origins in the Ordovician period, which lasted approximately 44 million years, beginning 488 million years ago, wrapping up 444 million years ago. At that time, it's believed Southern Europe, Africa, South America, Antarctica, and Australia were all bunched together in a supercontinent known as Gondwana. During this period, the area north of the tropics was almost entirely ocean, and most of the world's land was collected into the southern supercontinent, again known as Gondwana. Throughout the Ordovician period, Gondwana shifted towards the South Pole, and much of it was submerged underwater. That last bit per Aldovician by Patel and Sarvis of Cal Berkeley. But back to the here and now of the discovery, the individuals who made this uh, soon thereafter realized its importance, said Eric Montserrat and his wife Sylvie in a statement, quote, We've been prospecting and searching for fossils since the age of 20. When we came across this amazing biata, we understood the importance of the discovery and went from amazement to excitement, end quote. The fossils are incredibly well-preserved, containing extremely rare, soft elements such as digestive systems and cuticles. The site is now known as the Cabrieres Biota, and I have no idea if I'm saying that properly. Uh, and further analysis revealed the presence of arthropods, such as millipedes and shrimp, cnidarians, including jellyfish and corals, as well as a number of algae and sponges. The site's high by Biodiversity suggests this area served as a refuge for species that escaped the high temperatures prevailing further north at the time. Dr. Farid Sala from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland led the subsequent research team that inspected the site, which he noted was, quote, of worldwide importance, end quote. He also pointed out that, quote, at this time of intense global warming, animals were indeed living in high latitude refugia, escaping extreme equatorial temperatures, end quote. Now, there's still plenty of research left to be done on this subject. The Swiss researchers and their colleagues at the French National Center for Scientific Research intend to reveal the internal and external anatomy of the organisms discovered using new scientific methods and techniques. And like so many of the stories we bring you here on Cool Stuff, we'll continue to follow the progression of this research and bring you all the updates. So, Reggie, uh, I, I didn't know there was such a thing as an amateur paleontologist, but I can't imagine being one of these individuals and stumbling upon a, a discovery of this magnitude. And quite frankly, I'm not sure I would have any idea what it was I was even looking at. 
I'm sure there's non-amateur paleontologists that haven't made this discovery that mm-hmm. would be uh, thrilled to find it. And to be an amateur paleontologist, don't you just have to be somebody that likes to dig in the dirt? I, I um, mean, I guess that's the criteria. I don't really know what qualifies you as an amateur paleontologist, but I do wonder, okay, do do the real educated paleontologists, is there a little bit of jealousy here? Are they a little frustrated that these are the people that ended up finding these things? I think there'd be a little bit of jealousy, but also a little bit of awe, I guess, or yeah. in, in, they're impressed in some way, I would think. All I know is as you're reading the story, I feel like you're reading a fantasy novel of Gondwana and you name in all these uh, different places and Did animals. you watch Black Panther recently? <laughs> I, I'm thinking more of my uh, Wheel of Time books or something of <laughs> let's just have this fake land and it's a super land mass with weird water. You know, <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, that's kind of you know, prehistoric times. That's probably what it felt like a little bit. I guess it would be less swords and magic, though. Less swords and magic. Well, as far as we know. <laughs> yeah, yes. presumably so. Yes, if we had all those magic dinosaurs out there. <laughs> the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, here's your feel-good story for the day, and it comes to us from Bird World, one of the UK's largest bird parks. That's where a pair of African penguins named Squid and Penguin I know the latter is not so creative. (laughs) They've developed a friendship that would make Timon and Pumbaa proud. That's because three-year-old Squid has poor eyesight due to cataracts. So Penguin has taken it upon himself to be Squid's seeing eye bird, escorting her around their enclosure to get food and build confidence. Per the GNN story, Squid is often disoriented during busy feeding times and relies on Penguin's unwavering calmness to assist. Both birds were hand-reared, and their friendship has delighted the keepers at the park. Park spokesperson Polly Branham said, quote, The intuitive behavior observed between penguin and squid has revealed a remarkable level of empathy and understanding, showcasing the profound connections that can form within the animal kingdom, end quote. Unfortunately, squid developed cataracts just six weeks after being hatched, but was still able to learn how to be a penguin within the colony. That said, her caretakers said she used to be anxious about approaching the fish bucket at feeding time, given the excitement and, of course, the chaos of the group. Per Branham, quote, the excitement of the other penguins created a more unpredictable environment, and she would shy away from this for fear of getting caught in the crossfire of beaks. That is how Penguin has been such an enormous help to her. His stability was something she could rely on, the base from which she has steadily expanded her world, end quote. Senior Penguin Keeper Natalie Marshall said of the duo, quote, we didn't expect Penguin and Squid to form such a close bond, and it's evident that Penguin's resiliency significantly influenced Squid's self-assurance. Given that she has not known any difference, Squid has adjusted without realizing and we see in the way she walks and how she behaves around the other penguins that she compensates and is fully integrated into the colony, end quote. Now, although cataracts is an operable condition in some penguin cases, the staff believes that she's thriving without it. Therefore, they will likely not pursue said surgery. Like I said at the top, Reg, feel good story. Kind of cool to see these types of things. If you're one of those zookeepers, I imagine that's something you look forward to seeing each and every day. It is a feel-good story, and actually kind of reminds me of my marriage. I had to find someone with poor eyesight to marry me, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was wondering where you might be going with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Although I'm probably less useful as much as I am more of a hindrance. So it doesn't really go that way. <laughs> I find you very useful as a co-host here, Reggie. So you always have a home on cool stuff. Oh, thank you. So when she finally kicks me out of the house, I'll be living here. <laughs> you can live under the bridge and do the show. <laughs> yeah. All right, Marcus, you know what time it is. I know you love to say it, so go ahead. Weird Wednesday. <laughs> All right. I, I never need to say the day. It's just <laughs> weird. <laughs> Everything on this show is weird. <laughs> it right. sure is. So I've seen a lot of things land on my roof. Fireworks, which, by the way, I was not happy about. Frisbees, balls, basically anything a kid can throw up there. But I've never had a piece of a plane land on it. Well, a house in Philadelphia said they think an eight-foot metal object they found on the roof may have come from a plane. Sarah and Fabian Lima said, quote, It looks exactly like a plane window section. I have not heard of any planes missing doors in the area, so I have a hard time saying that with a straight face, but it's the only thing I can think of, end quote. They didn't hear it land on the roof, and they have no idea what else it could be. However, this isn't the first time something has fallen off of a plane. In July of last year, an evacuation slide fell off a plane that was landing in O'Hare, and it struck a Chicago family's house. So if you found an eight-foot piece of metal with a hole near the top there, Marcus, would you have any guess on what it is besides a piece of a plane? I mean, what else could get on your roof? What else is falling from the sky? Well, would I, I guess I wonder, is there the potential for this to this door to have come from a non-commercial plane, like one of the small prop planes that wouldn't be high enough to where it, losing a door would be catastrophic in any way? It kind of looked like that. It's not as, you know, you see the doors on commercial planes, you know, they got like the white on them. Um, it looks a little more polished finish. This looks like just a piece of metal. Mm, um, yeah. So it does seem probably a more like a plane. prop plane or private plane. Yeah. 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 And in that case, if that happened, I mean, I, I don't know. I might just be praying to God that nobody got hurt if I owned the plane and and landing that baby back wherever it came from. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess it's certainly a possibility. I have no idea what else would be up there, but it's hard to believe that it would just land on the roof and not do any damage. Meaning if, if it fell from the sky, I would assume that it would fall through the roof and not just land on top of it and sit there. Again, more evidence that it's probably a small prop or personal plane because falling from that distance may not do as much damage. But if you're falling from a commercial jet falling from that distance, it would probably, you know, destroy uh, your roof. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it would. 9.8 meters per second squared. The acceleration <laughs> rate of gravity. I think I still remember that from high school. I, I am not 100% certain on the accuracy of that, but I'm going to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, any scientist out there, coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Let me know if I'm wrong. So heading from the sky and now going to land, you know, if you're skiing or snowboarding, you are mostly focused on staying warm and having fun, or at least I'm assuming I've actually never been skiing. I'm, I'm not very good at that. However, you normally don't think that you're going to be racing downhill to escape a charging moose. But that is exactly what happened to Ken Reinerson, who had to do that at a Wyoming resort. As Ken was going down the hill, the moose started chasing him and other skiers. His friends were kind of, I guess you want to say, cheering him on or telling him, Go, Ken! Go faster! While others were warning him how close the moose was. Yikes. Now, the moose did eventually decide to go another direction. 
but not, of course, before disrupting and scaring a bunch of skiers. No one was injured. On a social media post, Reinerson wrote, quote, I did not have moose chasing us down the mountain on my bingo card, end quote. And just so you know, Marcus, a moose can run up to 35 miles per hour and are very territorial. Man, that's that's pretty frightening, given how large those animals are and then what you just stated, how fast they can run. Obviously, this moose is a snowboarder and just took offense to the skiers <laughs> up there. But yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know what I would do. I, thank God you were on skis and not just on foot trying to run away from this thing because you would be caught. You know, it's, I watched the video of this and the people saying, go, Ken, go faster, didn't seem overly panicked. It was almost like, go, Ken, go faster. Uh, I, I think I would have been a little more panicked and like saying, hey, Moose, go away, or, you know, trying to distract it in some way. But then again, I don't want it chasing me. So you're going to you think the Moose understands when you go, hey, Moose, go away. <laughs> hey, Moose. Oh, you... <laughs> shoot. I didn't realize you didn't want me here. Thanks for calling me by name. Grab moose. some snowballs, throw it at it. I'm sure that'll distract the Moose. <laughs> yeah, like you have the accuracy to hit a 35 mile an hour running Moose. You've been talking to my dad, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> saw your little league record <laughs> that's right okay fair enough <laughs> all right now we get to the point of weird wednesday where we hit those guinness book of world records now this one though it's not really as much as the guinness world record it's the fact that it wasn't recognized at first in fact it's almost heartbreaking richard plaud spent eight years and 4200 hours setting up the world's tallest structure made of matches he recreated the Eiffel Tower using 706,900 matches in the process and finally finished on December 27th. However, Guinness World Records denied his entry without even looking at it. So for the matchstick record, they need to be matchsticks that are available to the public and don't have the flammable red tip for obvious reasons. However, they must, quote, not be cut disassembled or deformed to the point where they are no longer recognized, end quote. As you can suspect, this was a lot of work. So he contacted the manufacturer to have just the rods delivered to him. That is what led to the disqualification, which Plod said was a, quote, great disappointment, which I have to agree with him there. I, mean, I don't know what else you can say besides it's a great disappointment. So when you when you say just the rods, you're essentially just saying the match, but without the red tip at the end. Exactly. He had those manufactured for him, but because that's not available to the public, they disqualified it on that reason. Cause you can't just buy the matchstick without you. They want you to right. basically go in and remove all the, the red, to which have to sounds cut like them off by hand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is a painful process for seven, almost 700,000 matches. Now Guinness world record said they may have been a bit heavy handed with their rules, Mark McKinley, director of Central Record Services, told Sky News, quote, We take a lot of pride in being as thorough as possible when reviewing evidence because our rules and evidence requirements level the playing field for everyone, everyone who wants to attempt a record. However, having learned more about the techniques used by the matchstick model community, and after a second review of this achievement in relation to similar record titles that we have awarded, it seems we have been heavy handed in the application of our rules in this case. We are therefore very happy to award Richard with the Guinness World Records title and have corrected some inconsistencies within our rules, which now allow the matchsticks to be snipped and shaped as the modeler sees fit. 
We regret the distress that the last 24 hours will have caused on and what should have been a moment of celebration for Richard. I hope he'll accept our belated congratulations on behalf of everyone at Guinness World Records on this truly impressive structure and his new Guinness World Records title, end quote. Long quote, I'm sorry, I know. Plod said he never lost hope, but called it an emotional roller coaster. As much as we criticize some of these records out there, if you spent eight years of your life and 4,200 hours setting something up and then be like, no, without even looking at it, that, that would be pretty disappointing. I, I don't care what record you're going for. If you spent that kind of time on it, that would be a huge disappointment I, that I they agree. didn't even take the time. I agree, but okay, let's play devil's advocate here. If I'm building said structure and it's going to take me eight years to build this thing and I'm all in on it, wouldn't you go ahead and ask the Guinness World Record folks before you contracted this matchstick maker to do this for you just to ensure you're abiding by their rules and you're not going to be caught on a technicality down the road? Now to be the devil's advocate to your devil's advocate, didn't the 49ers just say they didn't know the rules to overtime? Isn't that something you should know before going to the Super Bowl? What kind of straw man argument is this? <laughs> you, this if you're going to be doing something, you should know the rules of it. Oh, okay, that goes for any case. These two are mutually exclusive. Like the, <laughs> the 49ers screwing something up in the Super Bowl has no bearing on this individual's ability to contact Guinness World Records. 49ers could have contacted the NFL for the rules on how Super Bowl should be played. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Your devil's advocate to my devil's advocate is stupid. Let's uh, agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Burn. Next story. <laughs> and why not continue on with another Guinness World Record? The world's largest dragon sculpture made from balloons was built in a shopping mall in Hong Kong. The dragon was made from 38,000 balloons and had 60 volunteers help build it. It's just over 137 feet long, earning a Guinness World Record. It was created to celebrate the Chinese New Year and will be in the mall until the end of February. Balloon artists Wilson Pang and Kong Gong Ho said the hardest part was keeping it in one piece without any support structure in place. Is it really a sculpture if it's made of balloons? I mean, I mean you're not sculpting anything at that point. Sculpting, I would think by nature, you're removing something from stone or a block. This is balloons put together. Well, let's look up the definition of sculpture and, and see what we have here. According to Wikipedia, uh, you know, the quickest way to find any truth in the world, sculpture is the branch of visual arts that operates in three dimensions. Sculpture is a three-dimensional artwork which is physically presented in the dimensions of height, width, and depth. It is one of the plastic arts, durable sculpture processes, uh, originally used carving or the removal of material and modeling the addition of material as clay. So you could say the balloons are the addition of material to create the sculpture. So does that work for you? I have no idea what you just read or stated. So I will I will give it to you in this case. Sure, it, the balloons qualify. It's a three-dimensional piece of art where something was added to to create the model. All right, fair enough. Balloon sculpture it is. If you happen to be in Hong Kong, go check it out. And you tell us if it is indeed a sculpture. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
Taking a look at this day in history on February 14th, 1876, two patents for the telephone were filed. One you can already guess, Alexander Graham Bell. The other one came from Elijah Gray. Bell was granted the patent on February 7th, 1876, but over a 20-year period, Bell Telephone Company, which he founded, faced more than 600 court challenges over the issue. None of those, of course, succeeded, but things certainly didn't look good for Bell in 1887 when the U.S. government moved to withdraw his patent on the grounds of fraud and misrepresentation. An eventual Supreme Court ruling supported Bell. Several other scientists out there did come up with similar ideas as Bell, like Antonio Miucci or Elijah Gray. They partly lost out because uh, they didn't have a full patent. They simply registered for something known as a patent caveat. This patent is no longer issued. It was a preliminary patent, which meant the inventor had 90 days to come up with a full detailed application. In that time, anyone coming forward with the same or similar invention would have to give way. But the patent caveat had to be renewed annually. Miyuchi couldn't afford a full patent application, so he filed for the cheaper patent caveat. However, in 1874, he was so broke that he could not afford to renew it. Elijah Gray ended up losing out on the patent because his application was filed a few hours late. Bell's was the fifth entry of the day, while Gray's was the 39th entry. So Bell just beat him a little bit on February 14th, 1876, filing the patent for the telephone. And then uh, on March 7th, Bell was awarded the first actual patent, because before it was just the patent caveat that he did. The actual patent came on March 7th, and that came after years of hard work. Mary Bellis, the film director who specialized in writing about inventors and inventions, described the success of Bell for the telephone. Quote, on June 2nd, 1875, while experimenting with his harmonic telegraph, Bell and Watson discovered that sound could be transmitted over wire. It was a completely accidental discovery. Watson was trying to loosen a reed that had been wound around a transmitter when he plucked it by accident. The vibration produced by that gesture traveled along a wire into a second device in the room where Bell was working. The twang Bell heard was all the inspiration that he and Watson needed to accelerate their work. They continued to work into the next year. She added that Bell recounted the critical moment in his journal. I then shouted into M, or the mouthpiece, the following sentence, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. To my delight, he came and declared that he had heard and understood what I said, end quote. So I don't know if you knew that, Marcus, but the telephone from Bell's version was kind of invented by accident as they were working on something else. And if you didn't know it, Bell actually worked on hundreds of projects throughout his life and received many patents for its inventions. One of those being the metal detector, which he came up with to locate a bullet inside the body of assassinated President James Garfield. No, I had no idea about either of those things. The metal detector, I would have assumed, came at a much later date than uh, the lifetime of Alexander Graham Bell. But uh, you know what? Here I am. Cool stuff, Reg. Cool stuff. And uh, another little tidbit here that uh, Alexander Graham Bell always refused to have a telephone in his study, fearing it would distract him from his work. So he invented it, but refused to have one in his study. Oh, can you imagine if he had a cell phone today? <laughs> I know. He wouldn't get any work done. <laughs> Let me just check the internet one more time. Be right with you. Let me finish playing this game, Watson. <laughs> <laughs> Snake. <laughs> I don't know why I went old school, but I did. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can connect with us by email using coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back with more cool stuff tomorrow. Tomorrow.